1: I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkhara, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Dmitry Shevchenko, who is Assistant Professor at Ashoka University. We'll be speaking about a brand new OEP publication. It's actually part of a, a fascinating new uh, series called the Rocher Indology Series, and anybody who studies Puranas uh, 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 will know the name Rocher, uh, Ludo Roche's 1986 publication, on uh, the Pranos is certainly, uh, you know, uh, one of the, uh, the Bibles of uh, Prana studies, as it were. Uh, but today we're going to speak about uh, this fascinating new publication called Mirror of Nature, Mirror of Self, Models of Consciousness in Sankhya, Yoga, and Advaita Vedanta. Dimitri, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hello, Raj. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. So tell us a bit about how you got interested into this topic.
2: Well, um, the book basically grew from my uh, PhD dissertation, which I was writing for uh, when I was a graduate student at uh, the University of New Mexico. And I had a quite tough time for finding the the topic for the dissertation. I was planning to work on Sankhya because I I wrote my uh, master's master's a thesis on this topic, on this philosophical school, um, but uh, my supervisor uh, John Tabor he actually suggested to move on to other traditions. Um, it's always, too good to know several philosophical traditions and not getting stuck on only one. So I was kind of just going through all kinds of general Indian philosophy books, trying to find uh, just hunting for ideas, basically. And uh, I ran into Karl Potter's uh, uh, presuppositions of Indian philosophy. And uh, he was describing there um, a curious school, which is known as Bhavada or the, the school of uh, mirror reflection in Advaita Vedanta. And I was quite struck by, uh, by, this, by, by this very metaphor of mirror reflection as uh, referring to consciousness. Uh, So one thing that struck me was that I already encountered this metaphor in uh, Sankhya works. So it was quite interesting to find it in other traditions. Uh, Another thing that was uh, quite striking for me uh, was that um, there were quite serious debates over this metaphor. And some philosophers dedicated quite a bit of their... uh, of their texts to systematize and kind of develop and um, and respond back to all kinds of uh, arguments. So it was quite interesting that just um, a metaphor uh, became such a great, a huge topic across across traditions. And uh, finally, I found the image quite fascinating, this imagery of uh, mirror reflection as applicable to consciousness and to philosophical thinking in general. And I thought that it might be quite, uh, Interesting material, something that I would like to work about. But it took me some time to figure out what I actually wanted to say about those metaphors. So the material kind of kept on growing, and um, and then I um, and then I knew that on the one hand I wanted to narrate a history, narrate a story of uh, of mirror, of this metaphor of mirror reflection across traditions in India because it is just everywhere, any kind of philosophical traditions. Uh, in India, I use this metaphor in one way or another, but no literature actually exists. No like, contemporary modern literature on this topic really exists. And then I also wanted to engage philosophically with this idea. So this was another thing that uh, that I wanted to do. I mean, I, I had this urge to respond back or to develop a little bit farther. And at some point, John Tabor actually uh, told me, why won't you develop your own mirror uh, mirror theory? And that's what they tried to do at the last part of the of the paper, so basically the, more or less that's the shape that the book started taking so first the PhD dissertation and then and then the book so both both this historical overview of the topic but also a philosophical Could would
1: you say Would you say mm-hmm. a quick word for listeners who may not be quite as familiar about the the metaphor itself, this mere metaphor what is it
2: right so um So roughly, the metaphor goes like this. So just like the features of my face appear in the mirror without actually being there, without actually being the features of the mirror itself, in the same way, the properties of consciousness, that is subjectivity, the sense of selfhood, experience of qualia, awareness, all of these appear as if, belonging to the mind, to the mental entity, without actually being so. So it is the model, a curious model, according to which consciousness is a radically separate and independent entity, which is from from the mind, for example, which might sound a bit strange for the Western year, I guess. Um, But then there's this appearance and that consciousness somehow seems to be related to, to the mind, body, the world. Um, and at least three uh, philosophical traditions in India, which I explored in my book, Sankhya Yoga and Advaita Vedanta, they uh, try to explain the interaction of this you know, of this conscious, consciousness monad, right, independent, absolutely independent entity which is permanent, which is in, in itself, and its apparent interaction with the mind and the world, without there being real interaction. So there is an appearance of an interaction, but not a real interaction.
1: Is this the first uh, or, or only substantive monograph that's looking at this metaphor?
2: So, as, as far as I know, yes. I mean, there, there. Well, there some
1: you, you certainly would know having done a dissertation on this.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. Um, so there are studies of uh, mirror models of consciousness in particular texts or in particular schools sometimes, mostly no longer than an article, let's say. Uh, but this is the first study of the metaphor across traditions, and it allowed me to actually uh, trace the, this quite long history of interactions between different uh, traditions, primarily between the Buddhist reductionists about consciousness and the Brahmanical non-reductionist about consciousness. So the, Bra- the Buddhists would usually reduce consciousness to some kind of a process or cognitive activity. It is something which uh, you know, arises uh, upon certain factors being present and goes away when these factors are not present. But the non-reductionist about consciousness, such as Sankhya Yoga and Advaita Vedanta for them, it is just uh, just really existent thing, entity which is just there.
1: Could you say a bit about how this metaphor um, differs, its usage differs across Sankhya Yoga, and Advaita Vedanta?
2: That's a good question, Raj. Um, so in s- Sankhya and Yoga, they uh, use the metaphor in quite similar ways. Usually so both of these schools accept metaphysical dualism. That is, they're you know, two fundamentally fundamental entities in the world right fundamental principles of the world which is the material prime principle and um and consciousness basically and, right? purusha and, and prakriti purusha and prakriti that's right and prakriti or this material principle material uh, substance uh includes also you know our physical bodies the objects around us but also uh, the mind the mental faculty our thoughts uh, cognitions memories um uh, mental images, all of these things, fall on the side of, of the matter. While consciousness really just this kind of phenomenalizing principle, all it does is making uh, the material world to appear, to be experienced. And, and for this school, the metaphor of reflection really uh, was about uh, describing the, this interaction between two ontologically separate entities. Purusha and Prakrit consciousness and matter slash mind. Right. Because if those are completely ontologically distinct entities, if they're really independent, really distinct, and there is nothing really which, which is shared by those entities, it is unclear how they could interact at all. But it appears to us that they somehow interact. So this uh, idea of a possibility of not real but only apparent interaction this was really what was this mirror metaphor about. And again, they developed it in all kinds of creative ways. There are theories of mind reflected in consciousness, consciousness reflected in mind, the objects reflected in in, in the mind and then in consciousness. So there are all kinds of interesting variations within uh, and among those schools. Uh, regarding Advaita Vedanta, they inherit this uh, metaphor from Sankhya Yoga uh, and also from some other schools. But for them, consciousness really is all there there is, right? So the, the material world is not real, it is illusory. Um, the mind, of course, is a part of the material world, so it is also not real. But consciousness is real, and it is only one. And that's how they use, try to use the metaphor of reflection in order to explain how one consciousness could appear to be many, on the one hand, and how uh, something real, could appear as if related to something unreal. Right. So it is a little bit like one sound which can be reflected in many surfaces, right? The same, in the same way, one consciousness is reflected in many minds. So something like this.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, one of, you know, when teaching, um, yeah, either intro Hinduism or intro Indic philosophy, typically in continuing studies settings, but sometimes in undergrad settings. Um, uh, one of the metaphors that, that came to me in teaching some years ago is that um, reality a la Advaita Vedanta is sort of like being in a hall of mirrors. You know, mm-hmm. y- you walk into a hall of mirrors and there are these these perhaps um, sometimes grotesque, sometimes more accurate reflections about you and you're responding to these reflections. and And then the question arises, you know, if these... If these reflections aren't real, then are the responses real, et cetera, et cetera? But so, I really find it fascinating. I hadn't really, um, I hadn't really come across in this detail this this metaphor uh, that's been used um, across Indian traditions so vibrantly. So, I think it's it's important that you put this on people's radars because metaphor is a very useful way of thinking, and maybe it's something that we're not it's it's not instinctive in the scholarly world, but it, it certainly can be quite uh, elucidating or useful to think along the lines of metaphors if, you know, what is the reflection of the mirror? Is it real? Is it not real? Is it provisionally real? Is it entirely illusory? So I can, re- I can relate to your interest in this idea. It certainly is uh, worthy of exploration. Um, one of the fascinating aspects of this work aside from of course the the data itself and the engagement and the and and the, the engagement with this metaphor across traditions is that you decide to engage it yourself mm-hmm. and sort of would you say uh, you're at okay so you're adding to the discussion are you adding to the scholarly discussion are you adding to 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 uh, uh, are, you, are you extending tradition in some regard how would you characterize the discussion that you're contributing to Right.
2: Thank you. I mean, and I agree with you. There is something which is quite fascinating about this image of a mirror, this hall of mirrors and which actually um, we kind of getting we are lost in deciding what is true, what is real, what is not real. And then even in just one image, I'm just looking at my face, I could clearly see something which is real there. But there is also this deception, right? That uh, I mean, my face is not where it should be. How is it possible? And then all kinds of thoughts regarding the relationship between the reality and illusion are possible here. Um, Regarding, yes, my my own engagement, philosophical engagement with those ideas. So one thing that I I was thinking about, so the the first stage, I just wanted to construct this, uh, um, you know, the context the proper context of those ideas to understand them better to understand who is arguing with whom um you know what is what is really at stake what these philosophers mean by a metaphor of a reflection but then i also started asking myself what could be true about those metaphors or about those uh, models of consciousness, mirror models of consciousness, not only in the context of, uh, you know, the people who are living at uh, these days, the Buddhists, the Brahmins, uh, you know, believing in karma, having all kinds of uh, wild theories about uh, the mind, uh, how we grasp objects, the mind and the, and the senses are going outside of, uh, uh, of our body and touching and having, you know, assuming the form of the objects. Um, so clearly not all of these things could be uh, perceived as plausible now. So I started asking myself what could be plausible even in the context of um, of contemporary ways of being and thinking? And I thought about the, the hard problem of consciousness. So um, so there is most of the theories in contemporary philosophy of consciousness, accept uh, that consciousness, right, everything can be naturalized. Everything can be explained by natural uh, factors, by natural explanation, by uh, physicalist explanation. And consciousness should be reduced to some kind of, um, I don't know, uh, brain activities, neurological activity processes, things like that. But we still have this difficulty. And this is what is known as the hard problem of consciousness. At least one way to understand it. It is that we can't really identify consciousness in the natural world, right? Objectively, from the third person stance. I mean, if you kind of crack open somebody's skull and look uh, under the microscope uh, at the the brain, you can't find consciousness there. You can't find personal experience there. You can't find qualia there. Uh, There is just, you know, it is not in the physical texture of the brain. So it must be found somewhere else.
1: Okay.
2: And I think that um, the the way that non-reductionists about consciousness in Sankhya Yoga and Advaita Vedanta define consciousness very thinly, right, very narrowly, as merely this uh, phenomenalizing, phenomenalizing principle, something which makes things appear. It is not causally um, involved in natural in the natural world at all. It is merely that kind of thing which is unexplainable, which seems to be at least difficult to be explained in natural terms in this element which makes things appear and experienced. And I thought that I I can work with this. I could bring in this part, this this idea of non-reductionism about consciousness into contemporary discussions um, and try to defend them on the basis of uh, mirror mirror models of consciousness, uh, on the basis of an idea that yes, we see some interaction, Clearly, the brain creates this experience for us, right, the the representations of the reality, the cognitive activity, all of these things. It is all being done by, by material factors, but they appear somewhere else. There must be some kind of a phenomenological mirror to reflect all of these things.
0: Slash NBN
1: fifty to get fifty percent off. Well, it, isn't it fascinating then that just instinctively, without thinking about this at all, um, on this level, you know, we use the word reflect for think. I mean, oh. this is a fascinating idea. It's just, it's an internalized idea that somehow the mind reflects. And so what on earth is it reflecting? What is the light source? Just to extend the metaphor, we use reflection for thinking all the time, day in and day out. And it's instinctive to us to use the word reflect. It's not questioned. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps it's related to this idea of this, this mirror um, uh, analogy. I was listening to a recent um, interview. Uh, one of the ironies of my, my path is that I create a ton of online content, be it courses or podcasts. But consume relatively little nevertheless i find myself listening to a recent interview by noam chomsky the, the mm-hmm. seasoned um, you know uh, linguist among other things and the seasoned ancient brilliant uh, and still doing interviews apparently and one of the interview the interviewee asked at the end you know many interesting questions you know what do you consider your greatest accomplishment and and one of the last question was you know Clearly, you've had time to think about a great many things. What is one of the things that you that still puzzles you, or that you wish you could understand? And this was precisely what he mentioned. The, the, mm-hmm. He says we, we don't not only, you know, within a Western paradigm, right? Clearly, he's not a he doesn't study Eastern religion, as far as I know, or or he's not aware of other paradigms. He might be aware of them, but he's not operating within those paradigms. And he said, not only do we not understand the nature of consciousness. We don't even know what question to ask. We don't even have a mode or methodology. We don't even know how to begin to broach that issue. And I find it fascinating, because on the one hand, um, it's perhaps very counterintuitive to think of consciousness as transpersonal when, when one first studies Indian philosophy, for example. And yet, when one sort of um, uh, when one dials in on, you know, well, where in the personal complex does consciousness take place? it's evasive when we think of consciousness as a product of just the personal apparatus the, the machinery of uh, of the human it really is evasive so i th- clearly it's yeah. compelling to look to indic thought for discourse on consciousness because so far it still mystifies um western science i would say
2: yeah you're absolutely right raj and uh, i mean there is recently some trends of um you know uh, studying Buddhist theories of consciousness, for example, they become quite popular because I think they come quite uh, closely to quite close to uh, contemporary reductionist theories about consciousness. That consciousness is just reduced to it. It is a process. It is not a thing, but right? it is just something which is I don't know, a byproduct of uh, of some kind of um, um, cognitive activity. Let's say something like that or part of it. But um, as far as I know, there is so little studies of Brahmanical uh, theories of consciousness, which are reductionist, uh, reductionist, I'm sorry, non-reductionist theories of consciousness, precisely because probably they are not so popular in the, uh, in the light of more physicalist theories of consciousness. And I think the mirror models of consciousness are this kind of an opportunity to try to think along those theories and to find perhaps possible solutions to the shortcomings of contemporary
1: problems. Can you say a bit more about what you say towards the end of your book in terms of your particular interpretation or usage of the mirror metaphor?
2: Right. Thank you. Um, so what I try to develop is um, I'm trying to respond to the problem of the hardcore hard problem of consciousness. Uh, in contemporary thoughts, so and I'm uh, taking from Advaita Vedanta and yoga, the, um, the metaphysical dualism between mind and consciousness, and I think that actually doing that is, should be quite attractive, even for contemporary physicalists, at least perhaps for some versions of it, because it allows us to, um, to reduce, to materialize, to naturalize, uh, Quite huge chunks of the mind, because we can now say that uh, cognitive activity is something which which happens to matter, not to consciousness, not to not to some kind of other ontological uh, ontological entity. Um, cognitions, memories, um, perceptions, even uh, qualia—I mean, the, the content part of qualia, uh, what is being experienced it's all can be explained by you know brain activity or for mental activity, something like that. But if we leave uh, to consciousness, this very thin, very narrow um, set of features, which is basically just, you know, consciousness is just this phenomenalizing principle. It is just this uh, mirror of nature. It is what the nature needs for appearing, right? Not for just occurring and taking place. Then I think we can uh, somehow... Uh, maybe demarcate between the field of science in which, or science and/or contemporary philosophy of mind in which the project of naturalization of uh, of the mind can take place for a very high degree, and they don't lose much by giving up on this phenomenalizing phenomenalizing principle, which which goes to consciousness. And on the other hand, um, by that, we also leave space for the soteriological project. Of isol- that, that's what Sankhya Yoga and Advaita Vedanta try to do. Basically, they promise you that if you um, if you isolate consciousness, if you manage to understand consciousness and get consciousness as really distinct as this phenomenalizing principle and nothing else, you know, you, you get liberated.
1: Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then exactly, the zero yeah. <laughs> abides. Uh, exactly. In its own state, your, right? You
2: just right. The consciousness just gets back to you, itself. You go home. <laughs> you go home. Exactly. That's right.
1: Right. Uh, and
2: and then another thing that uh, I suggested. I thought that there, there is a problem with Advaita and I'm sorry with Sankhya and Yoga metaphysical um, dualism in that they allow for multiplicity of consciousnesses. I don't quite understand how consciousness, if it is entirely distinct from uh, from the natural realm how it could be many i mean what kind of space those different consciousness could not share or kind of be demarcated i don't quite understand how there may be many consciousnesses so i suggested to adopt from advaita vedanta the idea that there is one consciousness right um, and then, basically, I try to argue that the mirror model of reflection, uh, you know, allows for a plausible um, picture of the world. I mean, this, this, this—how it could work. I mean, consciousness is in itself; it is not engaged in any way in, uh, in the world. But there is this strange—I um, don't know—this strange, uh, uh, the Sankhya call it um, mutual expectancy. Right? Consciousness has this expect- expectancy to to experience. And uh, there is this capacity of the material world to be experienced, and oh, that's what creates this illusion of somehow, uh, you know, being interacting.
1: Well, perhaps, perhaps awareness is uh, is is uh, defined by or related to an object of awareness. Without an object of awareness, awareness has little meaning. Yes
2: right but the, but what should be noted that consciousness can exist without without an object right and it is not really doing anything with this object it, there is just this um, optical illusion of somehow you know they they they're interacting with each other but it is not in appearance it's not real
1: would you when you use the word consciousness uh, are you thinking of only the awareness of humans or would you also think of it as awareness within animals as well dogs uh, horses etc that's
2: yeah, a good question I and mean, it seems that according to sankhya yoga and advaita vedanta consciousness you know it is um, it is impersonal right and uh, the only thing which is required is the, the right kind of uh, the mind right which could reflect consciousness and of course uh, the animals at least i don't know allegedly they could reflect consciousness and they could have consciousness
1: it seems it seems to me i mean this is something i was toying with a long time ago as a naive uh undergrad <laughs> i think my first uh uh, well, so my first religious studies course actually was intro Hinduism and, I, th- and uh, I believe my term papers were on Advaita Vedanta. I was absolutely fascinated uh, when I first encountered this, um, this philosophy. And, you know, one of the ideas I toyed with was that, you know, uh, consciousness awareness is, you know, it is, what is it? It is the defining feature of, um, of, of life, right? Mm-hmm. Plants, animals. What is the difference between something that we consider living and something that we consider non-living? One has awareness of its surroundings, and the other does not. So, um, anyhow, enough armature philosophizing. I'll leave the professional philosophizing to folks like you. Um, is there anything else about the book or the project that you wanted to share?
2: Right. So perhaps I can say a few words about the um, about one of the major kind uh, of takeaways. That uh, I thought uh, you know, I, I took from, from this research. And it is about the history of those centuries long, it's, it's, it's almost 1,000 years uh, um, of debates between the Buddhist reductionists about the mind and the Brah- Brahmanical non reductionists about the mind. You see, everybody would agree uh, that almost everything changes, right? So the Buddhists would argue everything changes. The Brahmins would say, "Yes, everything around us changes." I mean, the world is this very stormy place where um, things appear and then they annihilate and uh, being being destroyed, and uh, you know there is no stability in the world. But for the Brahmanical philosophers, especially those in Sankhya Yoga and Advaita Vedanta, um, they try to preserve this. I don't know, like a, like this precious stone uh this consciousness monad so this one thing which does not change which uh, which stands all of these storms of life uh which is really a permanent entity which is undisturbed by anything which is um, uninfluenced by anything it just constantly um stays in its own blissful nature so to speak Hmm. and um and when they try to preserve this, so this metaphor of reflection came to be perhaps the most successful um, kind of way to to defend this theory, this non-reduction reducibility of consciousness. Because I mean, at some point, it just becomes one of the you know the standard tools instruments in the philosophical toolbox of those philosophers so they would they're ready to kind of pull it out anytime that their theory is attacked by the reductionists of consciousness um yeah and and i think it's really interesting and then of course they create it and they kind of they develop it further and they use it in all kinds of very interesting and um, and uh, creative ways but i think the most important thing here is um you know is that it is it is really one of the most central and uh, interesting ways of defending consciousness as being independent and and uh, the source of salvation
1: mm. well so many philosophical and spiritual traditions posit some sort of capital t truth whatever that is and mm. clearly uh, in, in the classical darshanas that's consciousness right that's mm. you know it's awareness uh, of some kind that's um one uh uh, perhaps we'll end with this question is this work that you plan to continue you know what is your current research like you know what's next for you
2: yes thank you for this question um so I'm not continuing working on mirror reflections, mirror models of consciousness. I think I exhausted this topic, although every now and then I would find some new material and I would say, well, this should have been included in the book or something like that. But organically, when I was working with some of the philosophers in my book, especially with Vachaspati Mishra, uh, who worked quite a lot about uh, on, on the theories of consciousness, both in his Sankhya um, and yoga texts, this actually took my interest to, to this kind of figure. A philosopher who actually produces highly original and interesting works written from the perspective of different philosophical schools. Right? I think this kind of, so the, my next project, the project that, uh, on which I'm working now it would become a book. Uh, it is on the phenomenon of a philosophical polyvocality in classical India, um, in which we see philosophers, not many of them, but uh, quite a few, who choose to work on different philosophical traditions. They don't feel themselves to be committed to these traditions. And this phenomenon even came to be uh, considered and re- respected uh, through this um, this title, which was for those, uh, those philosophers known as Sarvatantra Svatantra, but you can translate this, this uh, title in all kinds of different ways. The, the way that I translate it is somebody who can uh, defend any uh, philosophical system as his own. And uh, yeah, so this, this is my next project. So mostly I work on the works of Vaches Patimishra from the 10th century and on the works of Apaya Dikshita from the, the 16th century. Both of them considered as Sarvatanta Svatanta and who worked on all kinds of different philosophical traditions
1: fascinating well when that work uh sees the light of day as it were when it when it's birthed into the world um uh i know a guy who runs a podcast who would be happy to have you back so by all means reach out when that work is is out in the world and we'll we'll cover that
2: my pleasure definitely
1: thank you for being on the podcast today Yeah. Thank
2: you so much for having
1: me. For those listening, of course, we've been speaking with Dr. Dmitry Shevchenko on a brand new OUP publication that is part of uh, the new Rocher Indology series uh, called Mirror of Nature, Mirror of Self, Models of Consciousness, and Sankhya, Yoga, and Advaita Vedanta. Until next time, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the nature of consciousness. Take care.